one we read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The title of my message this morning is, Opening Gifts for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we can spend in your word. I thank you, Lord, for those that have come out to be able to, to gather together on this day, a day that we celebrate you coming down in the form of man to save us from our sins. The purpose of you coming, Lord, to, to seek and to save those who are lost. We thank you, Lord, for this day of really of celebration of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we pray that you'd bless our time together. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here or anyone watching online that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning. We pray, Lord, that you especially touch their hearts, help them to see their need for you, and they return to you today. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Well, I'm sure that you've heard all of the uh, uh, wise men jokes, but that's not going to stop me from sharing a few of them this morning. Do you know what would have happened? If it had been three wise women instead of three wise men in the Bible, they would have asked for directions, they would have arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casual, and brought practical gifts. How about this one? Three wise men originally showed up at the wrong manger and found a different baby and said, what child is this? (laughs) They get worse. Hold on. Are the two elderly ladies who were talking to each other when one said to the other, a virgin birth, I can believe. But finding three wise men, that's a whole other story. (laughs) Finally, the three wise men brought baby Jesus gold and frankincense. But wait, there's myrrh. Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) With that said, uh, and seeing how it is Christmas morning, I really don't want to, to bum you out about your nice little manger scene you have set up in your house and they're looking all pretty and nice. But the truth of the matter is, they don't really accurately portray how it really was. I mean, you have Mary sitting there with her hair freshly shampooed and Joseph looking all cool and calm and and collected. Baby Jesus is asleep on the soft hay, emitting this incandescent glow. Well-behaved barnyard animals sit perfectly still, silently watching this miracle birth. The shepherds, they arrive on the scene neatly dressed, clean cut, wearing new bathrobes. Then they're joined by the wise men, 
who arrive at the stable the same night as the shepherds, that are riding on camels wearing golden crowns on their heads. And everyone on the scene supports this golden halo. I hate to burst your bubble, but none of what I just said was actually happened that way. But it's easy through traditions to develop wrong ideas. But if you drop down to verse 11, it says it all, speaking of these wise men, and really in this one verse, it says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And as I said, this is the verse I want to focus on this Christmas morning, the gifts for Jesus. But in that one verse, it blows away maybe this perfect picture you may have of your manger scene at Christmas time. First it says, and when they had come into the house. They? It doesn't say, and when the three wise men came into the house. In fact, verse 1 tells us that just wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It doesn't say that there were three of them, just wise men. In fact, 99.9% of the time the Magi would travel, they would do so in huge caravans consisting of hundreds of servants. In fact, most Bible theologians suggest it was a group of 10 to 15 men. But it could have been any number of men, but we certainly don't see it limited to three. <coughs> Excuse me. Regardless of how many movies you've seen or how many nativity scenes you might have, there's no reason to believe that there is only three of them. Nowhere in the Bible does it say just three even though tradition even has them named. Casper, Balthazar, and Melchor. And there's been, you know, I mean, could be 300 of them, but none of them were named. There's no, there's no way to know for sure how many there were or their names. But we know they even have their own song written for them. That doesn't make it true. You know, we three kings of Orionar, bearing gifts, we travel so far, field and fountain, more and mountain, following yonder star. Maybe you can picture them all just to kind of, we three kings of Orion. You know, why are Christmas songs always in the minor keys? You know, oh, you know, here we go. I say, Tom, well, you shouldn't really make fun of them. I'm not making fun of them. I'm making fun of the tradition. Bible doesn't tell us what their names were. doesn't tell us how many there were. certainly doesn't tell us they had their own personal song that they sang. And it doesn't even tell us they were kings. In fact, there's more. Verse 11 says, when they had come into the house. Did you catch that? A house, not a stable. I am absolutely sure that as soon as Jesus was born, Mary wasn't about to stay in that stable one minute longer than she had to. She said, I am out of here. Let, let's, let's find some place to stay. They would have been looking for a different place. So again, the image of the three wise men and baby Jesus in a major Christmas time, as quaint and as pretty as it looks, it's a little misleading. Not found in the Word of God. But again, as I said, it's easy through traditions to develop wrong ideas about the whole scene. Well, let's keep going. Verse 11 continues. When they saw the young child. Listen, by this time, Jesus had already been dedicated in the temple. So more than likely, he was about two, one or two years old. I mean, at least two years after the whole stable thing. It also says that they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. They didn't worship his mother. They didn't worship, they worshipped him, Jesus. And again, through tradition, we get a lot of wrong ideas. But what we do have, as found in the word of God, is that these wise men followed a star that led them to the one they wanted to worship, Jesus. Now, when it comes to the star, 
Bible scholars have made all kinds of speculation about it as well. It was Halley's Comet, or it was a, the dog star, it was a, a nova or a meteor. That same astronomer, Johann Kepler, theorized the star or heavenly object was an alignment of all the planets. Kepler had read, Jewish, uh, read a Jewish rabbi, Abarbanel, who predicted that when a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter concurred in the constellation of, of Pisces, the Messiah would come. So that alignment was seen from Jerusalem over Bethlehem three times in the year 1603. So his calculations showed the alignment occurred every 800 years. And so his conclusion was that this is what the star, this is what they followed uh, the Magi at the time of Christ. Of course, how an alignment of the planets could yield precise enough navigation to pinpoint the house they were exactly at. I'm not sure about that. This leads me to think that the star was not a natural phenomenon at all but supernatural, that God put this light in the heavens for this very purpose. His Shekinah glory pointed the way. But whatever the star was, the Magi reacted properly. These were men that were skilled in astronomy and, yes, astrology and various occult practices, including sorcery. And they were noted for their ability to interpret dreams. And it's from the name Magi that we get the word mag, mag, magician from or, or magic is derived from. And because of their combined knowledge of science and mathematics and history and occult, they had this incredible religious and political influence. The king would look to them to interpret dreams. In the same way, if you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, when he had this disturbing dream, he basically called the Magi to come and interpret the dream. But he said, listen, I'm not going to tell you the dream. If you're really worth your weight in salt, you'll tell me what I dreamed, and you'll tell me what it means. They couldn't do it, and, and, and clearly, uh, you know, Daniel did it for them. But even so, these, these uh, uh, Magi guys, they were prominent in the Neo-Persian and Babylonian empires. Now, clearly, the Bible does not condone their activities. It's simply saying that, that these men who looked to the stars were deceived. But deep down in their hearts, they wanted to know the true God. And the Bible says in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 13, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. I believe if someone really is searching for God, they will find him. If there's a man or a woman that may be caught up in, in a false religious system, or may be caught up in a, in a cult, maybe it's Mormonism or the Jehovah Witness cult or the, or the Church of Scientology or a myriad of other false teachings, some New Age religion, they might be the end of the cult. But if they truly desire to seek God, to know the one true God, God will reveal himself to them. God will come to them in a way that they can understand. What was the way in which God came to these wise men in a way that they could understand? They looked to the stars. So God sent a star, a star led them to the one who created the stars, Jesus. Think about the disciples. How many of, this, uh, about how many of Jesus' disciples? They were fishermen. How did Jesus reach them? Through fishing. Jesus says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. How about you? What's your, what's your testimony? Mine was music. Man, I loved music. Back in the 70s, you know, music. And I, and I turned on this radio station, and there was rock and roll songs about Jesus. This was that long ago. You go, whoa, this is cool. Groovy. You know, it wasn't that long ago, but... <clears throat> So I'm listening to this music, and I thought, oh, this is awesome. And then right after that, in a few songs, they would play Pastor Chuck Smith on the radio, teaching the Bible, open your Bibles, and, and he was teaching through the book of Daniel, prophecy. Well, I've never heard this before. 
I had to listen. And every single morning, I'm waiting to hear this thing. Eventually, I gave my life to Christ. God used music to reach me and the pastor check for me to give my life to Christ. See, you may be into music and God uses the music of some individual or group to share the gospel. Whether you're into airplanes or sports or automobiles or motorcycles, God uses interests, hobbies, and inclinations. You, again, you may have been into the occult, into Eastern religions. You may have had a religious bent or scientific bent or an artistic bent. And God used that to get you to ask the right questions. Like these wise men did in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him. And I believe that's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to worship him. And they did. Again, in verse 11, it says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped him. That word they use for worship, it's full of meaning. It expresses the idea of falling down, bowing down, prostrating oneself and kissing the feet or the hem of the garment of the one who they're, they're, they're honoring. So here are these men of great importance, great, great stature, great power saying, we want to know where the king of the Jews is that we might fall down before him, prostrate ourselves before him, kissing his feet and worshiping him. And even though they came from a pagan background, they were exercising faith in the true God and coming to worship him. And they showed it in practical ways by giving gifts. Again, in verse 11, it says, when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I don't know what your toddler got for Christmas this morning, but I'm pretty sure they didn't unwrap gold, frankincense, or myrrh. <laughs> Curious gifts to give to a child. Gold wouldn't be so bad. It's worth a lot. Frankincense is an expensive essential oil. Some of you ladies know that. That's worth something, right? I can use this. But myrrh? Myrrh was from the sap that comes from a tree in Saudi Arabia. It was used for, 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 for perfume. It was a spice, but it was also used as an embalming fluid. When Jesus died on the cross, 100, rather not 1,000, 100 pounds of spiced myrrh, it says, an alloy was mixed for his burial. So myrrh was typically used as an embalming fluid. I am pretty sure that if somebody gave your little two-year-old Johnny a present and he opened it, it was embalming fluid, you wouldn't be too happy about it. Uh, we'll look at why it was given in a moment. But these gifts that these men brought in their experience represented the, the greatest worth to them. All of these gifts were rare. They were precious. They were expensive. See, whatever else we may learn from this story, we know that they gave their very best and honor to the one they believed to be the King the Messiah. Now, there are several things we can learn about giving here in, in this account. First, it's interesting that we, we don't know their names, but we know what they gave. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, I've always found it kind of odd when there are those who, who want to donate large gifts, but they want their name to show, associated with it. Well, can you put a plaque up over here? Or we want, want to dedicate this. It's clear to me that, that godly men and women who give out of a pure motivation of a desire to honor the Lord, uh, like the Magi, they don't care about having their names mentioned. That's why even in church, you know, we make it uh, a practice not to know who gives what. It's between God and you. Now, of course, you want, to, you want to give God all the glory and you want to give back to God because he's blessed you so much. But we don't know. The leadership of the church don't know. The only person that knows is the one that has to write the tithe letters for you at the end of the year so she can, she can get the tax right off. But, uh, but here's the point. The way, the way that you give brings glory to God as a body of believers as whole. When, when we don't know, oh, this person gave this or this person gave that. 
No, this church gave that, and God has blessed our church, and you guys are, are amazingly great givers, and, and, and we just can do more and more ministry the more that God blesses as we go on. But secondly, what we see here in the gifts, they also gave items that were local to their home area. See, the Lord welcomes us to give to Him what is available to us. You might say that the Lord loves homemade gifts the best. You know, I, I think my mom passed away many years ago, but one of the last gifts she, she gave me was these, and maybe you have some of these hangers that they take yarn and they crochet, you know, the, the yarn around the hangers. And at the time, I'm thinking, oh, you know, yarn hangers? Man, they mean more to me now than ever before. I, man, I got every single one of them. It, it was a homemade gift. It came from my mom. I love homemade gifts. And you know that if you received a special homemade gift, you know, it, it, it means more to you because of that. Listen, when we're home and we choose to read our Bible instead of watching TV, that's a homemade gift. When it's Christmas Day and you decide to come to church, that's a gift to the Lord. A third gift where, that where we see here is that the, the gifts were, were part of their worship. We read that they fell down and worshiped Him, and when they opened the treasures, they presented gifts to Him. So they, they bowed down, they worshiped Him, and they offered Him gifts. One commentator puts it this way. They had known Christ, but one day He had performed no miracles. He had none other to do Him homage. He was but a helpless babe, yet they fell down and worshiped Him. But most importantly... These three gifts would represent three roles of Jesus, the Messiah. Listen, let's take this for example. If I knew without a shadow of a doubt that, that my son would grow up and he would be the greatest baseball player that ever, ever lived, I might, at his two-year-old birthday, buy him a bat and a ball and a glove. And man, this, you're, you're gonna, this is going to be, be awesome. See, this is what these wise men offered to Jesus. Not a bat and a ball and a glove, but, but gifts that were sub- symbolic of certain truths truth as it relates to Jesus. These gifts are more than just strange gifts. They were prophecy. And it seems that God has given this group of wise men special spiritual insight, prophecy into the mission and ministry of Jesus through these gifts. Gold, first and foremost, is a gift that is a tribute to a king. They're recognizing him as the king of kings. Frankincense, a gift that spoke of prayer and praises rising to God. They're recognizing him as the very son of God whom their prayers would be directed and praise was deserving of. Myrrh, as I pointed out already, is a gift that was used for burial. They're recognizing that he's come to die for the sins and the sins of the whole world. But not only that, these gifts also show us that they come uh, from God, the, the providence of God. That is, God was providing to Mary and Joseph the, the means necessary for this long, expensive journey that they were going to have to take to Egypt just to sustain their family in a foreign land where they'd have to stay for a considerable amount of time. But let me tell you a little bit more about each one of these gifts that brought by these unusual traveling companions. We'll look at each one of these gifts separately and then we'll close. First one is mentioned gold. So, as I said, gold was the usual offering presented to kings by their subjects or those wanting to pay respects. It seems like, like this metal we know as gold has always had extremely high value. As long as 2500 B.C., gold was especially prized. It was used as its medium of exchange. Why has gold uh, you know, always represented great value? Well, for several reasons. First of all, it's scarce. Gold is scarce, which adds immeasurability to its value. But let's not forget, you know, gold is dug from the earth. You've got to get down on your hands and knees to mine it, to pan for gold. 
Also, gold is warmly beautiful. Have you ever seen like the dome of, uh, of a, a capital building or a mosque or a temple just coated with gold and just shimmering in the sun? Or think about a long flowing robe bordered with a gold edging. Thirdly, gold is enduring. Gold can withstand all natural acids and even fire. I mean, that's a good thing to bring up at wedding ceremonies to talk about how this gold ring becomes a symbol of marriage, which hopefully will endure the fiery trials of the test of time and, and the hardships and the struggles. Fourth thing we see is that gold is adaptable. It means you can shape it, you can form it into you know, necklaces and rings, and, and it easily adapts with other metals. See, gold is soft enough to be molded. Gold can easily be combined with other metals to provide an even greater strength. I mean, I think about this ring that I have on my finger, you know, 44 years old, uh, you know, that I have here. Uh, it had been long pressed out of shape if it hadn't been for the fact that gold is combined with another less pliable metal. See, even gold with all its beauty and virtues needs other to complement it. Now, after saying all that, wouldn't it be far better for us to want to be like gold rather than to wanting to have the gold? Think about its attributes again. Humility, beauty, endurance, adaptability. A person with these qualities would be rare indeed and priceless. You know, in both the Old and the New Testament, uh, tabernacle in the temple, gold was used plentifully. So we, we see gold is associated with worship. And we're told in the heavenly city that we will walk on streets of gold. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's an old one. One day, a very wealthy man uh, learned that he was going to die. He was so upset at the thought about leaving all of his, his possessions behind that he asked God if he could bring his money with him. To which God flatly said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> But this wealthy man never took no for an answer, so he kept asking and asking, persisted and asking. Finally, God relented and agreed to allow the man to bring one suitcase with him filled with whatever he wanted. Well, the man was so excited that he hurried and cashed in all of his assets, brought gold bullion, and filled his suitcases with gold. Upon entering the pearly gates, Peter saw him and asked about the suitcase. He said, you're going to have to leave that behind, buddy, said Peter. The man said, no way. I have special permission from God. He told me I could bring one suitcase filled with anything I wanted. Well, it's highly unusual, said Peter, but let me see what's inside. He opened the suitcase and scratched his head and pondered the contents and said, I don't get it. God said you can bring anything you want, and you brought pavement? <laughs> Revelation 21, John does descriptively describe, specifically describes a wall of heaven as being composed of jasper and the city itself of gold. But I tell you this. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be focused on, on earthly treasures. We're not going to be focused on gold. No matter how many precious jewels and materials make up the physical construction of heaven, nothing will be ever, ever greater value than the God who loves us and died to save us. Our focus will be on him. Like the Magi here in our story. They presented gold. They were honoring Jesus with the very best they had possessed. They were recognizing that Jesus was king. But what impresses me most about this first gift of the Magi and gold is that this particular substance is able to survive the fire. See, when gold is uncovered from the earth, it's not in a desirable condition uh, that the jewelers are looking for. The gold must be smelted in order that the impurities float to the top and the removal, leaving only the pure gold left behind. Paul uses this analogy when talking to the Corinthian church about their motives and, and, and why they do the things that they do. And he writes this, For no other foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, can be laid. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, 
costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Job, yeah, man, he, and the, the man in the Bible who perhaps was the guy most sorely tested uh, man of all time. He lost all of his worldly possessions. His children had died. His, his health was gone. His friend had made his burden heavy by trying to lay a guilt trip on him. And his wife, on top of all this, says, why don't you just curse God and die? But then we read in Job, uh, in the midst of all his suffering, listen to what he says, Job 23.10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. See, God is in control. He knows my path. And when he has tested me, I'm going to come out pure. I'm going to come across as gold. Peter adds to that when he says this in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter points out there that there's something more valuable than gold, or even the testing of the gold. It is a process whereby our faith is tested and strengthened. Uh, and the adversities and the sorrows and the hardships, trials of this life, uh, which test and strengthen our faith, uh, which will hold us all on into eternity. This brings us to point number two, the second gift brought to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That's frankincense. Maybe you heard this story. The little boy, after coming home from Sunday school class about the birth of Jesus, was asked by his mom what he learned. He said, I learned that there were three maggots and they gave gifts of gold, Frankenstein, and Smurfs. <laughs> Frankincense, not Frankenstein. It's a very costly, uh, very fragrant gum distilled from a tree that's found in Persia, India, and Arabia, as well as the East Indies. It's a, a white resin or gum that, that's obtained by, by uh, slitting the bark of this tree and allowing the gum to, to ooze out of it, to flow out of it. The word actually means whiteness, referring to the white-colored juice that flows out of the wood in the tree. The gum hardens for about three months, gathered at the end of the summer. It's sold in the forms of tears or clumps of a hardened resin. Frankincense is highly fragrant when burned and was therefore used in worship where it was burned as a pleasant offering to God. You may remember uh, the Lord instructed Aaron. And in, uh, in the temple, in Exodus 30, verse 7 and 8, it says, Aaron you shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. It will be a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. We know frankincense was also used as medicine and as perfume. But the, the main thing we can learn from frankincense is that is our worship needs to be pleasing to God. Remember, this is a sweet-smelling resin that comes as a result of, of the tree's woundedness and pain. See, we too can worship our God even through times of, of sorrow, even through times of brokenness. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. That's why David said in Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Yeah, joyful praise is great and it's acceptable to God and, and God inhabits the praises of His people. But tears like frankincense resin oozing out of our hearts, our broken hearts, and tears of repentance are especially pleasing, a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. Anyone can dance and shout when the team is winning and everything's going their way, but true worship happens when we must overcome those feelings of self-pity and fear and doubt. 
Now, I find it always interesting that, that in the Old Testament, God desired a sweet-smelling sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma, you know, you hear it. And, and it's an interesting phrase, sweet-smelling sacrifice. In the book of Leviticus, at least 16 times a reference is made to the offering as being a sweet savor. When God pronounces judgment on unfaithful Israel in Leviticus 26:31, he indicates that he's going to turn away from their offerings. He says, I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries into desolation, and I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. Now, do you really think that God cares about the smell of smoke? Now, we might care. It wouldn't be very pleasant to come into the church and attend a worship service where there's this horrible smell of burning flesh filling the air. So maybe it was a a benefit for the people of that, that, that burning frankincense was instituted. But on the other hand, God is interested in the condition of our hearts when we pray and when we worship Him. And it's the sweetness of our heart. Now, some of you may, may have put on a turkey before you left this morning for church. Maybe you got a ham going on, you got a timer in the oven, and, and you know when you come to that house, you're going to smell it. Oh, that's going to smell really good. And, or maybe you're going to go over someone's house today, and, and you're going to walk in the door, and you're just going to smell that smell. Go, oh, man, I'm even hungry right now as I'm talking about it. I believe in the same way. The Lord just enjoys the sweetness of our worship to gather together this morning on Christmas Day. Even though you've been encouraged to stay home, you've made the sacrifice to come here and worship the Lord. And God is just enjoying the sweet smell of worship that comes not from duty, not from guilt, but that flows from the love in our hearts and the praise of our lips towards our great God and King. And I have to say also, there's also something very sweet when we gather together as a church and worship. David said in Psalm 133:1, Behold how good and unpleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Then the final gift brought by the Magi was that of myrrh. Now myrrh, it's an aromatic gum produced from a thorn bush that grew in Arabia and Ethiopia. And it was attained from a tree the same way that frankincense was. It grows about 8 to 10 feet high and it's a thorny tree similar to an acacia. Now when it oozes out uh, from the wounded shrub, myrrh is a pale yellow color at first, but it hardens and it changes to a dark red, even a black color. However, if frankincense represents sweetness, myrrh represents bitterness, at least to the taste. In fact, the name itself was given on account of its great bitterness. Hebrew word is similar to the name given to the waters that were bitter, were bitter when Moses and the people were coming out of Egypt. It says there in Exodus 15:23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of the place was called Marah. You may remember in the book of Ruth, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, call me, not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She was having a bad day. As I mentioned earlier, myrrh was used chiefly as an embalming spice for the dead. It was used as a preserving agent. But here's the point. We know that in John 19, verse 39, that myrrh was used to embalm the body of Jesus. John 19, 39-41 says, And Nicodemus, when first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So then the myrrh brought as gifts to Jesus, acknowledged the human suffering that Jesus would experience when he came into our world. Yeah, myrrh has medical qualities, sometimes mingled with wine to form a special numbing type of drink. Such is the drink that was given to our Savior when he was on the cross about to be crucified. But Jesus refused that drink. 
Why would Jesus refuse the drink? Because he's already, he already drunk it. He had prayed there in the garden to be spared from the cup. But then he submitted to the Father's will and drank the bitter cup of his suffering when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he gave his life for us upon the cross. Once again, verse 11, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why? Because that little baby born in a manger some 2,000 years ago would grow into a man like no other. He would take the responsibility for all the sins of the whole world on his shoulders as if he committed them himself even though he never, ever committed a single sin in his entire life on this earth. Ever. He would allow men to beat him. He would allow men to torture him and put him to death by nailing him to the hard wooden cross, piercing his side with the sword, placing a crown made of thorns upon his head. What you and I so rightly deserve. Why? Why would he do something like that? Because of his love for you, his love for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me ask you this as we close this Christmas day. What is your response to Jesus? Is it going to be rejection or apathy? Yeah, I've heard all this before, you know. Or is it going to be worship? I've come to worship the King. Because that is what Christmas is all about. It's about worshiping our King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, the wise, they still seek Him even today. And as we close, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, what is keeping you from coming to Him? this Christmas morning, and giving your life to Him. I promise if you do so, it'll be the best Christmas gift you'll ever receive. If you acknowledge your sin, confess it, and your desire to turn from it, and turn to Jesus Christ, let me tell you what you get in return. Your sin will be forgiven. Your guilt and shame for all you've done will be taken away. The emptiness of your heart will be filled with the love of Jesus Christ and joy. And on top of all of that, you have the promise of one day being with Jesus for all eternity, walking where the pavement is made of gold. All because of what Jesus Christ has done for you upon the cross. He did it all for you. Listen, you have one more present to open this morning if you've not opened it already. Open the present that God has for you, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If that's your desire, as soon as service is over, please, Come up and talk to me. I want to pray with you. I want to give you a Bible. I want to let you know all about this gift that God has given to you of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We rejoice. We worship you, Lord. We bow down our hearts in praise and adoration to you, God, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. The only hope that we have on this earth is you. And Lord, we cling to that hope. We look to you. Jesus, as you took every one of our sins, past, present, and future, and you nailed them to the cross, you carried the weight of our sin upon your shoulders. You've given us forgiveness. Your word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You were the ultimate sacrifice, the one sacrifice once and for all. As you said upon that cross, you said, it is finished, paid in full. Our debt has been paid. We thank you for that, Jesus. And Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they've not opened that gift of salvation. Lord, I pray that they would do so this morning. 
We thank you for, for the, the gift offered to us, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Bible says,